Turn with me uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one that looks like this in the pew in front of you, and you can turn to page 330. Okay, you'll find our passage this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And if you're not comfortable or you're not familiar with reading the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, so you're going to look for the big seven on the page. And then we're going to be beginning this morning in verse 18, so that you'll see very small numbers on the page, and you're going to look for number 18 after you've found chapter 7. And uh, if my voice sounds a little taxed, it's, uh, I blame college basketball for that. There was an exciting game last night. Um, some of you know I'm a Duke fan, and Duke played UNC as they do twice every year, and uh, the game did not fail to disappoint. And those boys did not realize that I had sermon, a sermon to preach this morning and sermon prep to do last night. And they went into overtime and just too much hollering and screaming. So, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the right team won. So that's what was important. All right, as you turn to Second Samuel chapter seven, I want us to think about a moment in our life, in your life. When you felt truly humbled. Teddy and Caroline, you guys going to be okay back there? Yeah? Okay. You show me how you can sit still, okay? <laughs> Think about a time when you were truly humbled. Maybe it was on your wedding day when you were standing at the end of a very long aisle and you realized how unworthy you were to be able to have this woman for the rest of your life. Who am I to deserve such a woman? Or maybe you received a, an award or a, an amazing promotion at work or a, you were, a recognition that took you off guard. And as you were standing before a group of your peers and they were clapping and celebrating what you had accomplished, you just couldn't help but feel, who am I to deserve this? Or maybe if you're a parent, you know the feeling when that doctor hands that newborn child to you and you receive that child and you just realize, who am I to receive such a gift from the Lord? That sense of wonder and humility is what David experiences this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When something so good happens to him, something that has never been done in the history of the world, something which, given a million lifetimes, he would never be able to have earned from God, when God just bestows it on him simply as a gift. David is utterly humbled and is struck with the question, who? Who am I? If you were here last week, you heard from the Lord and what the Lord promised to David, and, and it's summed up in this. He promises David, I'm going to build you a house. So David, he's finally established in his kingdom. He has a big castle. He looks over and he sees the Lord, his God, is living in a tent. And he says, something's wrong with this. I'm going to go do something great for God. I'm going to build God a house to live in. And the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to say, no, actually, that's not how this is going to work. I'm going to one-up you on this, David. I'm going to build you a house. 
And what that means is three things. He promises David an eternal offspring. He's going to have a son who's going to be king forever. He promises him an eternal kingdom. His kingdom is going to stretch across the whole earth and will never end. And he promises him an eternal throne. And in response to God's promises, David can only utter three words. Who am I? And that's what we're going to explore this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you found your way there, let's stand together as we honor the reading of God's word. Second Samuel 7, beginning in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before you Uh, Before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. David responds to the promise of God in three ways this morning. Humility, praise, and prayer. And so what we're going to look together at this morning is in response to God's promise, David chose three proper responses. Number one, God's promise makes us humble. Secondly, God's promises make us praise. And thirdly, God's promises make us pray. So if you're taking notes this morning, 
Um, and we're just going to follow along through this prayer of David as he demonstrates to us these three proper responses. God promises these great and amazing mighty things to David. And in response, God's promises make David humble. God's promises make David praise. And God's promises make David pray. The first three words of King David's prayer basically preach themselves. Look at verse 18 with me. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I? Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? God has come to David and said, You. I've chosen you. Out of all of the peoples sprawled across the entire earth and throughout all of history, of all the kings who have risen, of all the kingdoms, I've chosen you, your house, your offspring, your kingdom, your throne. You're my chosen one. I'm going to build for you house. You can picture David going down the stairs in his castle, making his way across the courtyard and entering that little, in his mind, rinky-dink little tent that he's pitched for the Lord. And falling on the ground and realizing that everything great and mighty that he thinks he has done for the Lord is actually Nothing. Just some tattered rags and a few billowing curtains. And he surveys all the vast and mighty kings and the kingdoms and thrones of the earth and he realizes, I am nothing. Kings have come before me. Kings will come after me. Kingdoms will rise. Kingdoms will fall. Thrones will be built. Thrones will be toppled. Of all the people on the face of this planet, why me? Who? Who am I? And what God has revealed to David is not some new plan of his. You know, it's not that God sees David and he realizes, wow, things are really on the up and up for David. I better get on this bandwagon before things get off track. Now's my chance. No, God has revealed to David a promise that he made before the foundation of the world. That's why God went and handpicked David from among the flocks of his father when he was just a nobody, a little shepherd boy. This is why God placed David as the prince and leader over his people. It's because of an eternal choice made by God alone before the dawn of creation to love David with an eternal, unconditional, promise-making, covenant-keeping love. And when that truth hits David in the heart, he ceases from all of his dancing and his singing and his celebrating and tambourining before the Lord and he falls on his face and all he can say is, Who am I? God's promise makes David 
humble. In verse 19, David marvels at the irony of God's promise. And yet, this is a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. That word instruction is literally the word Torah. This is the law that governs all of mankind. This promise that you are making to me. David realizes the promise that God has made to him to build him a house is what rules over the course of all of history. What David realizes is that God is bending all of history, all of mankind, toward keeping this particular promise to David. God is not well-wishing for David. He's not well-intentioned toward David. This is not a hopeful ideal. David says, your promise is an unbreakable law that will govern this universe, this promise you've made to me. It will be accomplished. Imagine standing beside the cross. Imagine three days later standing inside the empty tomb. Imagine standing before the throne of the risen Jesus and recognizing the truth. All of this has happened so that God could keep a promise he made to me. That's David in this moment. Brothers and sisters, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that is you and I. How unworthy are we for God to bind his own hands by such a promise? To say, I am voluntarily going to bind myself that for all of history, I have to make this come true for you. Even though I could use my mighty power in any way I see fit. Friends, what kept Jesus hanging on the cross was not the nails they drove through his hands and his feet. What held Jesus on the cross were the eternal promises of God. The Lord's steadfast love to David held him there. Who am I, David says? How unworthy am I to have been brought this far? And yet David says, you've made promises that are going to stretch forward into eternity. What has David done that in a great while later, the Son of God would hang on a cross in his place? Nothing. David has done nothing, and David is a nobody. That's the answer that he knows when he asks the question, who am I? Friends, as we read further into 2 Samuel in the coming weeks, what we're going to see is that David is really no different from Saul. If you don't know anything about King Saul, he was the king who came before David. He sinned against the Lord, and the Lord said, you're done. I'm cutting you off. You are done. David will sin, arguably, in a more egregious way against the Lord. Committing adultery and then committing murder to cover it up. And yet for some reason, the Lord will forgive and restore and redeem David in a way that he didn't do for Saul. And why? 
God promised he would. God's promise. It's not because he deserved it more than Saul. David is nothing. He has done nothing. In fact, it's right there on the cross. That sign tells us exactly whose place it was reserved for. The king of the Jews. That's where David deserved to hang. But instead, one of his sons, Jesus Christ, the son of God, hung there in his place. Who am I? God's promises ought to make us humble, brothers and sisters. Christians ought to be the most humble people in all of the world. Because we know how great God is and we know how small and how infinitesimally small it is for God to get involved in trying to save little bitty old me. Why would he even bother with that? And yet God has troubled himself with saving me anyways. Who am I? Who are we? But David realizes that before in the beginning God had made a decision and the decision was this. That he was going to make the heavens and the earth and he was going to make a sprawling universe and he was going to fill it with planets and stars and then he was going to build an earth and on that earth he was going to put vast oceans filled with billions of gallons of water miles deep and put mountains on the, on the, on the dry ground that were miles high and then he was going to fill that world with millions upon billions of people and he was just making the, the biggest stage possible so that then he could enter in and save. Little small tiny us. That's why he created this universe. So that through Jesus Christ, he could keep his promise and save us. So that he could pluck people like little David out of the sea of humanity and say, You. I want you. Salvation dwarfs us when we come to realize that this book and beginning in the very first chapter in the first verse and all of the words leading afterwards are just a one big pretense to save us through Jesus Christ. That's what God's angling for from the very beginning. That's what all of these words and all of these promises and all the great and mighty deeds that God accomplishes are for. That all of salvation history is leading to one mountain in the center of the universe where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dies in our place, redeems us forever to belong to God. That's what this is all about. Yeah, 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 I know Jesus died on the cross and blah, blah, blah. No, no, you don't really understand the truth that we're talking about here until it has humbled you to the core. When you realize in the depth of your soul that God troubled himself with saving me. Wicked, sinful, can't do anything right, screw everything up when it's my turn. Proud, rebellious, ungrateful, little me. <laughs> Who am I? I'm a, I'm a speck, I'm less than a speck, I'm nothing. Why would God trouble himself with saving me? With saving any of us? With saving David? 
Only the greatest of gods who has nothing to gain and everything to lose by saving me would do such a thing. Only a God who doesn't need my praise or my glory or my honor, but acts on my behalf simply so that I can enjoy praising and glorifying and honoring him forever would do such a thing. Only a king whose throne is so exalted and so unassailable and so beyond the attack of any of his enemies would enter into this world and offer up his life to die in the place of his people. Who am I, Lord? I am nothing. I am less than nothing. And yet, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible, filled with all of the promises of God, tells me so. If you've been waffling about whether or not to believe in Jesus, whether or not to trust him, whether or not to believe that he died on the cross for you, whether or not you're going to surrender your life to him, the problem is that you still think that you are something. Friends, I hate to break it to you, but you're barely a little blip on the radar of the universe. You are one person in a sea of billions upon billions of people who have walked the face of this planet. Why should God order the entire universe and the entire course of history around saving you through his son, Jesus Christ? There is no reason why. Other than his love and his promise. Do you have the humility to believe? The only reason you can say to the Lord, give me Jesus, is because Jesus has already given himself for you. And until you realize the humility of that truth, you will not believe. God's promises make us humble. Secondly, David shows us this morning that God's promises make us praise. In verse 20, we see David asking this rhetorical question, what more can I say? What can I add? What can I do? There's nothing to add. What praise or prayer or worship or glory can I add to the praise and worship and glory that God has already won for himself and what he's done for me? Nevertheless, it doesn't stop David from praising the Lord all the more. Look at verse 21. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Why is God doing this for David? Why is he making these promises? Why is he acting this way? David says it's because of your promise. It's because of what is in your heart, God, that you're doing this. <coughs> That's why. The Bible tells us God does whatever he pleases God tells David beforehand what is in his heart to do. And then he does it. And nothing stops him from doing it. God does not merely wish he could accomplish good things for you. He doesn't simply hope things will go according to his plan. God tells us what is in his heart to do. And then he goes and does that very thing. 
imagine that in the heart of God resides an eternal desire to save you through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus died on the cross. It's because that is what is in his heart. Because God does exactly what is in his heart. And this is the reason for David's praise in verse 22. Did you hear that word there? He says, therefore. Therefore means what comes after is the result of what came before. Therefore, on account of this, on account of the promise that God has made, therefore you are great, O Lord God. This is what David returns to the Lord. God gives David his promises, and God's promises make David praise. Even though I know I can't add a single ounce of glory to you, Lord, I'm going to try my hardest anyways. I'm going to praise you, even though I know you are so great. I'm going to do whatever I can with all of my being to praise and exalt and magnify and glory in you. David cannot help it. God's promises make us praise. David praises the Lord for his greatness. There is none like you. There is, in fact, no other God besides you. There's not even anyone in the same league with you. You are infinitely exalted above every other creature or being in this universe. No other God makes promises like you. In fact, all other gods are false in comparison to you. They are nothing. You are great, exalted, mighty, unique in all of your excellencies, and your promises are what prove it. And then David praises God for his salvation. Listen again to verse 23. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. This is how God garners praise from all the nations for himself. It's by coming down from heaven and redeeming his people. Coming down, purchasing them out of slavery, saying, you were once slaves, you're now my sons, you belong to me. Triumphing over Egypt and Babylon and over every other kingdom and nation and every other God. How? By keeping his promise. By sending his son, Jesus Christ. Because you see, the cross is not merely God flexing his muscles. It's not saying, look how strong and mighty I am. You could kill me, but I'm coming right back. That's not what's going on. See how great I am. No, the cross is a place where we see God redeeming his people. Purchasing for himself, as Peter would say, a peculiar people. See how great I am? You want to see how great I am? I'm a God who keeps my promises to my people. That's how you'll know how great I am. Verse 23 says, He shows himself to be great and awesome by doing for them great and awesome things. That's how the world comes to see how great and praiseworthy God is by what he has done for us in saving us. And think about this. David is praising God for the Exodus. All right, the Exodus was amazing and great and mighty. But we now stand on this side of the cross. 
If David was driven to such praise by the Exodus, how much more should God's promises make us praise this side of the cross? And why did the cross happen? Because God promised to David that he would do it. (coughs) God had already decreed over the universe his eternal favor upon David. His eternal decree is what reigns over us in Christ Jesus to deliver, ransom, and make us the recipients of his good pleasure and all the compassion and mercy and loving kindness and covenant faithfulness in his heart. He determined before the foundation of the world to pour that out on us in saving us so that we would praise him for that. God's promises make us praise. So we see in David's response to God's promises, number one, humility. We see secondly, praise. But third and finally, God's promises make us pray. In verse 25, David pivots in his conversation with the Lord. But really the crux or the center of his prayer is in verse 27. Look at it with me. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servants, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, because of this promise, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. What gave David the courage, humble and lowly as he was, to speak to God? And to pray. He tells us exactly what it was. That God gave him this promise. I will build you a house. This promise. Is what makes David. Have the courage. To pray. God's promises make us pray. And this is the only way that it can be. Because if we have an accurate estimation of ourselves. If we have been humbled. By God's promise. And we have an accurate estimation of God. And we realize how great and awesome and praiseworthy he is. Then the question becomes, how dare I even venture to speak, let alone give orders or requests to the God of the universe? What gives me the right to even think that he owes me his ear, that he should listen and hear and respond? Who am I to expect anything from him? Who am I to even believe that he hears me? And if I were to speak to him, what words would I even say? And this is why God has to initiate. He comes into a sinful world and he penetrates our world with these promises made to sinful people like King David, like you and me. And it's these promises that give us the confidence to pray. And what is it that David finds in his heart to pray when he finally gets up the courage to speak? David simply prays God's promises back to God. No more, no less. If you were to sum up David's prayer, it would be this, Lord, do what you said you would do. Look at verse 25. And now, O Lord God, 
Confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. Do as you have spoken. Keep your promises, Lord. That's his prayer. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the many purposes of the Old Testament. God makes promises, keeps promises. Makes promises, keeps promises. Makes promise, keep promise. Make, so that he will build up a reputation as a God who always comes through and always keeps his promise. Now, he may not do it today or tomorrow, but he will do it. He has never in the history of the universe or his existence made a promise that he hasn't kept. God builds a relationship to Israel that is built on this foundation. I want to be known as a promise-keeping God. That's how I want you to know me. And every time he makes a promise, he is putting his reputation on the line. Look at verse 26. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. The Lord wants to be magnified before all nations and all people, and he wants to be praised by this name, the Lord who keeps his promises. And then he comes to David, and he makes this promise, I will build you a house. Well, friends, do we have to wonder whether God has kept that promise to David. We know he sent Jesus Christ. We know the words of Jesus himself. On this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell itself will not prevent God from keeping the promise that he made to David. Friends, look around you. We are the promised house. You're looking at the promise keeping of God this morning. And all of his promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, the son of David. And it's this fact that God keeps his promises that David finds the confidence to pray. If David found that confidence on that side of the cross, how much more should we, when we read the promises of God, be compelled to pray? So many of us struggle with prayer. And I would venture to guess that a large part of it, maybe not all of it, but a large part of it is we don't know what to pray because we don't know the promises of God. We don't know what God has promised. God's promises are what are meant to give us the confidence to come before God and ask him to do things for us. Confidence to ask astounding things like, God, will you please give life to my children who are dead in their trespasses and sins? God, will you further our missionaries who are taking the good news to people who are trapped in darkness and in need of the light of the gospel? God, will you bring justice to this world that is filled with unrighteousness, evil, and oppression? God, will you deliver us from the evil one? See, our, our, our prayers are, are meant to flow out of the promises of God. We're supposed to hear God's promises in his word and, and just pray them back. Pray them back to God. 
I, I just want to give you two quick examples as we close. I'll give you one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. But the point is, we should be doing this every day as we're reading God's word. We see a promise, we pray that promise. Because there's never been a promise that God doesn't keep. Here's one that you're probably really familiar with. Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's a promise. And you read that promise. And I don't know where you're going, whether you're going to school or whether you're staying home or whether you're going on a long drive or you're traveling or whether you're going to have a hard conversation with a, an employee. Whatever it is, whatever circumstance you are headed in, God has made a promise that he will be with you. Won't you pray and say, Lord, will you be with me today? Will your presence with me give the strength and the courage that I need to serve you with my life? Brothers and sisters, God will keep that promise. Jesus has said, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He is going to keep that promise. Or what about in the New Testament? James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's a promise. Again, I don't know what's in your life, but we have complex issues, problems we don't know how to solve, children we don't know how to parent, <laughs> money we're not sure the wisest way to spend. Why not spend some time praying this, trusting in God's promise, God give me wisdom with this child. I do not know how to lead them to you. I've tried a thousand ways. God, show me how to reach this child's heart with the gospel. God, I want to serve you in my workplace, but my boss is asking me to do this thing, and, and I don't know the way forward and in integrity. God, will you give me the wisdom? I'm trusting that you'll keep your promise. Praying back the promises of God. That's what David does. God's promises make us pray. So if your prayer life feels stale, maybe you need to spend some time reading God's word and whatever promises you find there, pray them in Jesus' name. Enter into the presence of God and fall on your knees and say, for me, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I, I'm praying that you will just keep this promise to me. Not because I'm something, but because you have obligated yourself to me through your son, Jesus. Will you keep your promises, Lord? David realizes how God's word is meant to shape his passions, his desires, his dreams. Because God is the one who tells us what we're meant for. All those questions that we have. Who am I? What purpose do I have in this life? What am I supposed to do? How can I know anything in this world? The Lord says, come to me with those questions. Fall on your feet. Uh, fall on your knees before me and I'll answer them. I'll give you my good promises that you can trust forever. We will pick up any book, we will read any blog, we'll surf Instagram and the internet for some quip or some diet or some inspirational quote that somehow we think is going to be the key that unlocks our life. Why will we not pick up the promises of God and trust that these are what God wants us to pray and these are what he is going to do for us? In fact, as we close, this is what I want us to do. If you have your Bible still open, we're going to pray verses 28 and 29 aloud together.
We don't have to change a single word. We can pray this promise and trust that God will keep it in Jesus' name to us. 2 Samuel 7. We're going to pray aloud verses 28 and 29. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.